HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Bringing you pizza live from Roberta's, Indie Jesus. Oh, you did that. Got me on this corner. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues. I was on the air with that? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we got a little piece of that. All right, all right. So here's, here's how it works, folks. Uh, my headphones weren't on, and usually when my headphones aren't on, no one can hear what I'm saying, so I can say whatever, whatever I want. And there is a waiter here at Roberta's who, I mean, doesn't, doesn't wear the same clothing as Jesus, you know. Uh, but basically looks like, you know, indie rock, indie rock Jesus. Am I right about Robert, this? Robert Plant Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and welcome to Cooking Issues. Okay. And, and you can come down to Roberta's, which I highly recommend, and have a pizza served to you by Indie Jesus on any given Tuesday. Uh, okay. So, uh, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria uh, on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12... To roughly 12.45. Can we say that? Is that accurate? Yeah, I had a little running with the M train and then jogged over here. Uh, my fault. I should have just left earlier. But I was at home researching all of my listeners' questions. What are you, listeners? What do we call them? Listeners? Mm-hmm. Listeners? Anyway. Joined, as usual, in the studio by uh, with uh, Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Rough. Rough? We were out late. Rough. Well, Cooking Issues <laughs> had a late night last night. Uh, we were doing the Eater Awards. And... Uh, we made uh, milk soup, right? <laughs> it's a Colombian soup, changua. I think I talked about it on the air. I, I made it in Colombia, and they wanted something with eggs and pears, and so we did that. So it was like, you know, milk and chicken stock and fish sauce and uh, little lime poached egg and uh, some stuff, like uh, vacuum-infused pears with, um, with uh, you know, some uh, – what's that stuff called? Well, my brain is on, is on hold today. You know, the Spanish pepper, pimenton. Uh, oil and uh, cilantro oil and cilantro and vacuum infused onions, you know, all that good stuff. <laughs> but, oh, and corn nuts, by the way. I'm bringing corn nuts back. By the way, that's my job for the rest of my life is to make corn nuts come back because corn nuts are some delicious product. Anywho, so um, basically, if you're ever going to do one of these events, uh, here's what you should do. Everyone else did this, right? They made up a little sign about what they were making. They, you know, with it, I swear to Christ, 
I shouldn't say that in the air. Like next next to us, right, was Red Farm. The the dim sum guy there made a miniature village out of dough. <laughs> Different colors of dough. Man did not paint any of those little figures. I'm talking like like absurdly detailed miniature people holding pandas with like flowers out of dough, all on a bed of of like pink peppercorns and like with like these weird flowers that look like tree bonsai things. The lady next to us had, you know, like eight million year old candle drippings, like Vincent Price House of Wax kind of business, spray painted gold. We had nothing. <laughs> Ninda, nothing. And we show up and not only do we have nothing, we don't even write down what we're serving. So the entire time we had to just sit there and give the whole long shebang spiel of what the hell we were doing. By the end, we were just da- dancing in our booth going, milk soup, milk soup, get your milk soup, milk soup. Right, pretty much? Yeah. Anywho. Uh, so I highly recommend making a sign before you go out to one of these events. Also, uh, been a busy week. We were, we were up at the Harvard uh, with uh, Harold McGee uh, and John, his son, who's a TA for that class, uh, doing the uh, – we're doing drinks. Mm-hmm. How do you think that went? Think it went well. Yeah, I think it went well. I think they enjoyed it up there, the drinks. Mm-hmm. Although, I wasn't allowed to serve any – oh, check this. All right, look, the Harvard undergrads, now I know that, like, you know, you know, universities, I remember back that long ago, universities, they get all, you know, they get their privates all bunched up about uh, underage drinkers, right? You know, uh, and uh, so we weren't allowed to serve any liquor, even to students who were over 21, which I was fine with. But check this, it's like some sort of weird, like, 70s beer commercial. I'm not allowed to taste what I'm working on. It's absurd, right? Mm-hmm. Absurd. Absurd. Anyway. Uh, so, uh, enough of, uh, what we've been, except for, I'll tell you one more thing that's interesting. Uh, Nastasha just went to see Fishbone. This is not a cooking related. Oh, by the way, you should call in your questions to <laughs> That's 718-497-2128. Okay. So, um, uh, Nastasha went to go see Fishbone, which was one of my, my favorite bands growing up. Nastasha from Los Angeles never listened to Fishbone. Or the chili pepper. She hates anything that's local, by the way. She's like an anti-local person. Like, if it was around when she was a kid, she hates it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, tacos, she hates them because she's from L.A. You know what I mean? Fish bone, she didn't listen to it. Why? Because she's from L.A. Me, East Coast guy my whole life, grew up listening to kind of that West Coast uh, ska, funk, punk kind of stuff. Anyway, Fishbone, Seminole Band. I'm happy to report to my listeners out there that Fishbone still rocks after all these years, right? Yeah, yeah they, they were hardcore. Their horn playing was so tight back in the day that you could have put a... Anyway, whatever. Um, <laughs> on to the questions. All right. Hi, Dave and Nastasha. I've got a couple of sausage questions for you today. Some sausage recipes call for the addition of soy protein or milk powder to help with moisture retention during cooking. I've got an excellent bratwurst recipe. Brats. Bratwurst. Bratwurst recipe right now that I always get good results uh, and juicy results from. I'm wondering if I should try and tweak the recipe by adding some milk powder or soy protein. Maybe it will be even better. You know, this is from Matthew, and he has a second part, but I don't think so. Um, yeah, I don't think you need to uh, – no, no. What do you think? No. I don't think you need to kind of cheapen it. I mean, look, you, you, if, you're, if your stuff is juicy now, right, then I don't see the point of adding like a filler or extender. Milk, pro- milk protein, it's okay – uh, you, you know, if I don't know, I just, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Soy protein, I definitely wouldn't do. 
taste it. Does it taste delicious? Is it making your sausage more delicious, right? If your sausage is already juicy and you don't need any additional... Oh, my God, Indy Jesus is coming by the, st- <laughs> coming by the station. If, if, you don't, if you don't need the additional binding power, uh, don't use it. That's my feeling. What do you think, Nastasha? <laughs> he looks at his reflection. <laughs> All right. For those of you, which is everyone, who, who uh, doesn't know what we're talking about, like we basically, here in the radio station... We look through a, a window at whomever is eating in the kind of like faux outside enclosed, you know, backyard of, uh, of Roberta's Pizzeria. So, you know, on break, we will often make comments to ourselves about the guests and or the waitstaff. True? True? Okay. Uh, okay, Matt, back to Matthew. When I cook my bratwurst, I usually gently poach them in beer, good call, before browning them on the grill, also a good call. An issue that comes up is they tend to swell and the meat ends up poking out of the ends of the casing. One suggestion I got was to let the sausages air dry a little after stuffing them. This would dry them out uh, a little bit, and thus when they rehydrate during cooking, they will not swell as much. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I don't know that, um, I don't know that, uh, that the issue with uh, sausage bursting is uh, a rehydration hydration of the meat issue. I think it's basically a swelling, um, probably swel- swelling of the air pockets that are inside of your, uh, of your bratwurst. Now, if you make the texture denser by like vacuuming the meat before you put it in, you'll probably get less swelling. Um, I think what, what you're doing when, you, <clears throat> when you're letting it dry out a little bit, lose some of its weight, is you're just uh, providing a little extra space in the casing for expansion because it's still going to expand the same amount if the same amount of air is in there. At least that's my feeling. I don't know. This is just off the cuff. So, uh, or you could stuff them a little less tight and they're not going to burst. Also, I would recommend probably poaching at a lower, I don't know when you say gently poach. Um, I don't know what you mean by gently. I would, when I do brats, uh, or any kind of sausage, I think I've mentioned this on the air, uh, you want to get an immersion circulator, uh, and you can put your beer directly in the immersion circulator, or you can put a small amount of beer in a bag uh, with uh, the brats and circum at um, uh, 140 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, which is 60 Celsius. That's the magic one. You should all remember. I don't care if you can't do Celsius and Fahrenheit. You should just remember 60-140. Just remember that. Anyway, um, the other magic one I always remember for some reason is 57-135. Anyway, so I would circ them at uh, 140 uh, 60 Celsius for like, you know, 40 minutes, something even longer you can go. This is actually going to, okay, so look, when you're making a sausage, the whole idea of grinding up the meat is to take uh, tougher other things and flavorful things, uh, make them, you know, join together into kind of a more homogenous mixture, but also to tenderize by grinding, right? Uh, and you add a lot of fat to keep the sausage uh, moist even after it's cooked because, you know, sausage, if it didn't have a lot of fat, would dry out. With a circulator, you can tenderize the actual individual particles of meat by cooking longer, and you don't need, I mean, you should keep the fat in because the fat's delicious, but you're not going to need the fat just from a simply a juice standpoint, from a juiciness standpoint. So uh, it's like a double win. So if you get a circulator, I would cook your brats with a circulator. You could do them in beer and then uh, and then cook them off on your, on your grill. What do you think, Seth? That's good. Good? Good. All right. Anyway. Um, okay. Keith Solomon from, how do you pronounce that? Win- Winnetka? Mm-hmm. Winnetka, Illinois. Uh, writes in, and he says, per our request to please write in some questions, uh, I am one of those who listens every week via podcast. I have a question about taste. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, why, uh, why does so much fish always have that frozen taste? I know that you can get good frozen, frozen fish. What is the secret? Um, and also, Thanksgiving is coming up. Why is so much uh, deli turkey so awful? It can't be that hard to make turkey taste like turkey. Well, <clears throat> here's, the, here's the deal with deli turkey. It's just bad. 
You know what I mean? It's like they uh, they they're forced to kind of overcook the turkey, um, you know, per per the regulations that they do. And so to make up for that, they have to like hit it with a bunch of stuff to keep the moisture levels high enough after they overcook it. And it's just you know. It's just not turkey, and then they slice it preposterously. It's just not. It's just not turkey. It's not turkey. What do you guys think? Anyone? Anyone here think that stuff's turkey? No, no. And you know where you should get your turkey this year, right? You should get it from Heritage Foods. Actually, you know what? Heritage Foods turkeys are delicious. Do we still have those? Or are they sold out, Jack? No, we've still got some. Yeah, uh, yeah it, Patrick just got back from Kansas City. Well, is that like the turkey capital? Or yeah, that's turkey <laughs> turkey capital. Turkey capital. Yeah, the turkeys here at Heritage, and you know, not to pump our own brand or nothing, but the turkeys we get here are uh, are are pretty damn good. I mean, I didn't pay for mine last year. I stole it from Patrick actually when he wasn't looking, but it was a delicious turkey. Oh, also speaking of pumping, you know who came to the event yesterday? Tim Musick from JB Prince Chef Superstore came to um, our event and gave us a sauce funnel to use at the event. Sauce funnel, by the way, a sauce gun is basically a funnel. With, with a little stick that sits in the bottom of it. These things should cost like $1.50, but they cost like $150 for some reason. And so everyone always resists purchasing one because they're just so damned expensive. And if you're working at a school, they tend to get lost. Um, however, they are like the world's greatest thing. I wish my hands was con- were constructed out of them because you can just dump unbelievable, like accurate, fast portions of anything liquid out of these suckers. So we did you know, our 400 uh, portions of soup, and I didn't spill a drop until someone asked me a question, and I leaned over on the funnel, and it actually opened it onto the table. Did you see that? No. You didn't catch that? No. Thank God, because she would not have let me forget it. Anyway, <laughs> sauce gun, uh, like the greatest thing in the whole in the whole damn world, and uh, you can purchase it at the JB Prince. I'm going to get back to uh, whose question is this? Keith's question after our first break. This is a house that Jack built, y'all. Remember this house This was the land that he worked by hand It was the dream of an upright man There was a room that was filled with love It was a love that I was proud of This was the life, the life that he planned On the love, the same old love In the house that Jack built The house that Jack built Remember this house There was a fence that held our love Yes, it was was the house that Jack built by Aretha Franklin. An actual request from uh, one of our listeners. You can call in your request. We'll take them. We don't care. We like that song. And uh, Jack especially likes that song because yep. it's the house that he built. That's for Lee Calvin. Yeah. God damn. You know, Aretha Franklin, afraid of flying in such a severe way that she has to drive a bus wherever she goes to go on tour. Did you know this? Did you know this? Anyway. Today's episode, number 62, which by the way, 62, you can now cook a low temperature uh, pork belly. And listen exclusively to uh, Cooking Issues broadcast while you do it. I don't recommend doing that. But if you stayed up for 62, basically, you know, Cooking Issues straight, cooking your uh, pork belly, low temp, you would have a nice pork belly. Why? 
Well, it's just that's how many hours of, uh, of, of BS that we've spewed over the air. It takes 62 hours to cook. Well, we don't have a full hour, but it's like rough. It depends. Look, it, I'm just lying. It depends on what temperature you do. But anyway, today's episode is sponsored again by our friends at Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients, but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? I wish we could call these guys. You know, the school doesn't have... Any of their hydrocolloids left right now, they have nothing, and I have to go do a... We're doing... Look, right after this episode, we're going to do an event with uh, Nathan Mirvold at the FCI and Maxime Bile, and we could use some modernist pantry love right now because they have no uh, Kelco Gel F, Gelan, left. They have no flavor-free guar. Anyway, it's it's pathetic. Anyway, modernist pantry offers a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook or enthusiast, and most cost only around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space, whether you're looking for hydrocolloids pH buffers, or even meat glue. You'll find it at Modernist Pantry, and if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Modernist Pantry now carries ingredients for curing, including two types of preg powder and pure sodium nitrate. Fans of cooking issues have place an order of $35 or more before next week's show will get a free package of preg powder number one. Simply use the promo code CI62, that's CI62, and placing your order online at modernistpantry.com. Visit modernistpantry.com today for all of your modernist cooking needs. So, when I, there's by the way... There's a caller. Oh, there's a caller? All right, when, I, when we're done with the caller, i got to talk about preg powder. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, great. Well, thanks for being late. I was, too. Oh, <laughs> uh, nice. All right. Well, uh, what so, uh, yeah, list all your shows. Got the number memorized, even. Nice. Beautiful. Nice. Wow. So, um, what, do you, what do you got for me? Had, had news for you. I fixed the popping sorghum issue. Oh, yeah? I, uh, yeah, sealed it in a jar, vacked it with a few tablespoons of water. Works great now. Um, I, for a, few days. a few days? Just took them. Um, nice. So, basically, so the thing was, like, they were too dry. A couple, like, couple tablespoons of water for, like, what size? Like a liter mason jar or something like that? And then just let it equilibrate for a couple of days at regular ambient temperature. Yep. Is, that, is it whose phone? Fo- that's your phone. Beautiful. It's beautiful. And and it's and so now now you pop entirely evenly all the way across. I still have a lot of widows. Yeah. Just sorghum normally does, but. Uh, By the way, it, it works really wonderfully. Nice, uh, nice use of the actual technical term for unpopped kernels. Did you know? Did, did uh, many people do not know that an unpopped popcorn kernel, and now I guess also uh, by analogy, a sorghum uh, kernel are called widows, which is an interesting fact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You mentioned that one before, I think. Too. Oh, really? Oh, I don't know. Who knows? I can't um, remember what to say. So, uh, bringing back corn nuts, we went to a Peruvian restaurant in uh, Sonoma. Right. And they uh, they deep fried Peruvian giant corn. Yeah. It was the size of a corn nut, but way lighter. Much better than a corn nut. I have to try some of those. Well, the Peru- yeah, Peruvians have like several different kind of uh, fried uh, corn. Like some of them have like a weird papery husk, which I actually kind of like. And some of them are in weird shapes and they're bigger. But like the Peruvians have forgotten more about corn than we'll ever know in terms of uh, pop, like like crunchy corn snacks. Do you know what I mean? Uh Wow. I mean, Peru, like you know, Peru is one of those places where uh, you know I, I need to go. Everyone, when you when you you know you go to South America, they're like, yeah, you need to go to Peru. You need to go to Peru. That's where it's happened in Peru. But I've never been, so I'm looking uh, looking forward someday. The one thing that in Peruvian, I don't know whether I mentioned it here, that's crazy is they have these. Uh, it's not corn. They have these crazy freeze air freeze dried potatoes that they make up in the mountains that taste like uh, mm, unwashed goat fur. That accurate, Nastasha? <laughs> mm-hmm. Unwashed goat fur. So I think I actually asked this on the air once. I'm looking for 
anyone out there who has a knowledge of how to actually make these uh, these like uh, naturally freeze dried potatoes from Peru taste good, and I haven't had anyone tell me how to do it yet. Do you remember what they're called? Um, it's like chunta, chunta something, chunta. At, Jack, I'm sure Jack will look it up. She, he, he sits here while we're doing looking looking up this stuff. Uh, anyway, but yeah. So my my main question, the reason I called, I have a boatload of nori. It's raw nori. Right. What do I do with it? I want to make uh, like my. I thought of making like a nori cracker or something like this, but the stuff tastes. It's got the texture of a wallet. Yeah, well, it, it's me, but it's already in sheets. You mean it, it's rolled into uh, sheets? It's not. No, no, no. It's raw nori, like just taken out of the ocean and dried. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you could. And I, I'd like to leave it raw if I could. Yeah. Make some sort of snack food or something out of it. Well, you I mean you rehydrate it and then get it thinner, and then when it dries out, it will be less uh, leather wallety. You probably just have too thick of a layer of it. You know what I mean? <clears throat> oh, it's one one whatever I guess a leaf of frond thick. I uh, rehydrated it and, and uh, put it in the dehydrator for a few couple few times. Just cycled it to try to make it weaker, and it didn't really help a lot. It's still so I'm going to try freezing it next. Still, yeah. Yeah, freezing might break it down. I don't know. I don't have any experience with it. Another thing, I mean, obviously you could um, you could ch- chop it and then and then uh, <clears throat> put it into a mat and then dehydrate it and it'll it'll stick together. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm pretty sure that's right. how they make the thin the thin sheets, right? The lava sheets is they get a bunch of it and then they they spread it out thin. Hmm. I, right. I don't have any experience with this. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to put my thinking cap on on this one. Yeah, I thought I'd try to maybe fermenting. Uh... What else could I do? I was going to grind it into flour, possibly, and make crackers. Yeah. Like a flat cracker or something like that. But uh, I'll any t- ideas you have would be... Well, All right, I'll tell you what I'll do. Sometime during this week, I'm going to try to remember to look up some seaweed processing technology, and I'll try to talk about it on the next week's show. Wonderful. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. I have another caller, apparently. Caller, you are on the air. Uh, hey, Dave and Nastasha. It's Brian. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. What's up? Um, so I saw that on the Modernist Cuisine blog that they posted uh, DIY style, what they call a vacuum concentrating system. Mm-hmm. And basically what it is is um, a vacuum pump. Um, they either do with a vacuum pump or what they call an aspirating nozzle mm-hmm. that hooks up to a, a vacuum, to a flask um, that has um, one of those magnetic stirring bars in it. And basically, it allows you to um, do vacuum kind of reductions or concentrations of, of, of liquid. So I guess it's not a rotovap, but it's a kind of DIY hack. And I'm wondering what you thought, uh, if you had a look at, at, at that post, and what you thought of, um, and what you thought of it. Is, is, there, is there anything I can do to improve what they, they have here? Will it work? Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? All right, so here's the here's the. Here's the dealie. Um, it it works. It's not. It doesn't do um, distillation in the sense that you. It's very difficult to save the distillate because you don't have a cold trap. So the way an aspirator works is you, you have a jet of liquid water, typically that uh, goes down, and the actual speed of the jet going down sucks the air out, carries the air with it, and, and goes down. Much like uh, you would, you know, if you spray air, you can suck paint up into that and then spray it out, right? So it's, that, that, that's what's going on with an aspirator. <clears throat> now, 
The, in chem labs, aspirators are used as a very cheap uh, vacuum source, and classically what, what you would do is you would screw the aspirator into a water faucet, you turn it on, and you just dump water down into the sink to produce your vacuum. Okay? Now, they, p- people don't like to do that anymore because it wastes ginormous amounts of water, and it's considered you know, not uh, necessarily green to, to do that anymore. So people have built aspirators with uh, circulating pumps that they can circulate and they can keep the aspirators going without wasting a lot of water. Now, the downsides of, uh, of an aspirator as a pump is that they're not very uh, quick pumps. It takes a long time to pump down to a vacuum. Second thing is an aspirator pump is limited in the number of uh, – in the, the, the depth of vacuum it can pull by uh, the vapor pressure of water at the temperature of the water. So you – like if you're using an aspirator, the trick is to get as cold a water as you can. For instance, ice water works great. Uh, and then recirculate it to uh, achieve a vacuum. Now, <clears throat> if you don't have a cold trap, you're not going to, like I say, be able to recapture. So it's basically for – reduction. And uh, in order to get a good reduction and to stop a lot of bumping, you need to do uh, a lot of stirring and agitation of your liquid, which is why they use a magnetic uh, stir plate, hot plate, right? Um, right. So it, it, it totally works for that. And you know the, the, the temperature of your liquid is going to be determined by uh, not by the temperature of the hot plate, but by the uh, ultimate pressure that your vacuum is able to uh, maintain, right? And so you can kind of, you can measure that if you want to. So this works, and and it's very important that you use an aspirator pump for this uh, technology because it's one of the only types of vacuum pump that uh, they can get contaminated by vapor, ethanol vapor or water vapor, without crapping out on you, right? And so that's why they use that kind of a pump for that. Um, because they're actually not the cheapest kind of pump. There's a much cheaper vacuum pump you can get that does a much better vacuum, but it can't handle the contam- it can't handle the contaminants the way that uh, the way an aspirator pump can. Uh, and, and by contaminants, I mean all the stuff that I like to save in a rotovap. So definitely, if you look, be an eBay ninja. Get yourself a hot plate. They're not that expensive. Get an Erlenmeyer flask with a takeoff on it. Also not that expensive. Um, you know, a cap and the aspirator. You can uh, you can either buy them. They're not cheap, and uh, they don't come up that often uh, with the circulator pump in it already. I mean, you can get it, um, but um, you can buy uh, the actual individual aspirator units and hook up a pump yourself. And I recommend going to um, any uh, meth head. Uh, like a methamphetamine production uh, website by you know by like these tweet tweet junkies, and uh, because they need a vacuum source to do some of their distillation work, and so you know they have uh, kindly put plans out there where you can go basically to the Home Depot and build uh, an aspirator pump for fairly fairly cheap, you know because remember they need to be able to do this stuff without getting caught, you know, in like trailers and whatnot. So uh, you know they they have that that pretty locked down. And what are their websites? <laughs> oh, I, I, I hesitate to actually mention the name of it, but, you know, Google, like, you know, DIY meth lab uh, or DIY aspirator. Am I getting in trouble? I'm getting in trouble. I'm, t- I'm being told that I'm getting in trouble. Anyway, Nastasha's shaking her head and making the vegan face. But that is, in fact, where, uh, where I learned how to build my own aspirator pump back in the day. And I'm assuming that the, the feds haven't figured out how to go on and kill all those websites yet. Um, even, even though it has been like six years. But anyway, uh, good luck experimenting with that, and uh, call back and tell us how it works. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll Google and see if I can get some from the meth heads. All righty. Thanks a lot. Okay, now, uh, Q, 
Keith Solomon, back to Keith's question, which, right. I, which I never freaking answered. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've, we've, we've established that the deli turkey is awful because they start with low-quality turkey, overcook it, and pump it up with a bunch of crap to keep it moist, right? Okay, so the other part of, uh, Matt, of uh, Keith's question was, uh, why does so much fish always have a frozen taste? And I know you can get good frozen fish, but what's the secret? All right, there's a couple problems. Here's the thing with fish, and with anything really uh, that you freeze. Uh, home freezers don't actually freeze everything uh, solid. You're only freezing a portion of the wa- of the water that's in uh, a food, right? And so when you're freezing in a freezer, ice crystals are actually forming on the outside of the cells and in, a se- in essence dehydrating uh, the actual cells in the, in the muscles. And what that means is is that all of the stuff in the cells, proteins, liquids, enzymes, um, uh, myoglobin, anything like that, and fats and whatever, whatever's there is getting more concentrated. And as it's getting more concentrated, even though the temperature is lowering, lowering, certain reactions can take place very quickly. And one of those reactions is rancidity. So what happens is fish typically contains a lot of uh, polyunsaturated um, fatty acids. Those are the types of fatty acids that are very prone to going rancid. Fish also have a lot of things in them, you know, like blood and whatnot, uh, that are pro- that, that basically help to catalyze uh, rancidity uh, reactions in their own fat. So um, that thing, that rancid taste, is I'm assuming what you're talking about, happens in the freezer just like it would out in uh not I mean not I mean it happens slower obviously but it still happens even though the thing's frozen and it's all because fish isn't actually frozen uh like solid down to a hundred percent uh solidity okay now there's a couple ways to solve this. Don't store your fish too long in a freezer. That's one, right? Two is to vacuum bag fish before you freeze it because in the absence of oxygen, uh, it's going to be very difficult for the fat to oxidize and go rancid, right? So you want to get rid of air. You want to not store it in the freezer too long uh, if you can't get rid of the air. Uh, but you still – getting rid of the air is, is the main thing. Uh, and the, the same thing happens with bacon, by the way. Bacon goes rancid in the freezer um, the, uh, unless it's vacuum-packed. Um, the other thing is, is in the really high-quality fish, the sushi stuff that's frozen solid, is uh, they freeze it way down. They super-freeze it to uh, – I, I forget what they call it. They probably call it the eutectic point or something like that, even though I don't even think that has meaning. Anyway, um, they, they super-freeze it down to the point where literally all of the water is solid and the chemical reactions cease to take place at a reasonable rate. And so uh, that happens down around minus 70 C. So if you go to so like some high-end sushi joints or if you go to uh, Del Posto has one, a bunch of people have these super freezers and they store their meats in the super freezers and there's basically zero temperature cycling. Everything is solid. There's no recrystallizing and decrystallizing and recrystallizing and so the quality stays perfect, right? Mm-hmm. That was a good answer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Jack, should we go to one more break or should I take another question? Yeah, we should. All right. We'll go to one more commercial break. Call your questions and, to uh, what? For, for this break, we have a uh, certain song dedicated to a certain somebody from <laughs> a certain <laughs> vegan-faced co-host. All right. So here's right. that. <laughs> Strength to walk out. 
If I were your woman, you were my woman, and you were my man. So who's this? Who, wait, who, Jack, who is that from? Who, who, it was Gladys Knight in the Pips. Yeah, but who is that? I thought it was Aretha Franklin. Who, who requested it for Nastasha? No. No, no, no. This is a dedication <laughs> oh. from a certain co-host to uh, s- a certain somebody else. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> nice. All right, nice. That's, that's, a, for, that's for an episode of Issues. So. Some, 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 some secret love <laughs> going on? You know what you got to play then? If it's a secret... You got to pull out the Kenny Rogers, the uh, the the one where like daytime friends and nighttime lovers, hoping no one else discovers. Yeah, it's good stuff, right? Anyway, uh, okay, we have two unrelated questions from uh, uh, Ryan, right? From Ryan Santos. Uh, one, what's the best way to clean my circulator? Answer: It depends on what kind of circulator you have. Uh, but uh, in general, um, the new plastic ones are a little more difficult to clean out the insides of. Um, the old stainless steel ones are easy to kind of work with. It, we use, you can use a combination of like a CLR, which is like clear uh, lime rust remover. You can use uh, like a light, like a degreaser, and you can actually circulate these things with, with the product. So you circulate it with that. You can get the, the uh, tabs that are used to clean out combi ovens. Uh, basically anything that's going to eat grease. Uh, I mean, obviously basic solutions uh, eat grease very well, but I'm not exactly sure whether or not it, you're, you can put um, a very, very basic solution onto the uh, onto the circulators. I have to check it. But basically you run it with detergent uh, and a degreaser, like a uh, you know, like, uh, commercial degreaser, and, and then rinse it in water and, uh, and run it again in hot water, and they should clean up. But it is a problem uh, that needs to be addressed. I told Philip Preston on the new plastic one, I think he should install little shoulder screws so that you can very easily pop the back off and really clean in and out where the pump is, but not yet. It hasn't done it yet. I'm sure he's going to do it because I think it's a good idea. Anyway, two, I experienced a weird reaction at a recent dinner. I served a local baby persimmons with a green tea called hojicha. Hojicha? Hojicha. Uh, some reaction happened that caused an extreme uh, tan- uh, tannin reaction and made my mouth super dry and astringent, unlike anything I've experienced. Do you have any idea what's happening? Was it a reaction in the skins and the tea? The reaction didn't happen with water, soda, beer, etc. Hmm. Well, this is interesting. I mean, well, I mean, obviously, look, you have tea. Tea has, uh, tea has tannins in it. Right, and persimmons have tannins in them, and the way uh, tannins work is uh, they bind to um, proteins in uh, in your mouth, proline-rich proteins, uh, and uh, it, those proteins lubricate your mouth. So when the, those proteins bind to the tannins, now your mouth feels dry because it's not lubricated anymore, and that's astringency. Okay, now. Uh, in persimmons, persimmons naturally have a lot of uh, tannins in them, and w- what you do, you know, normally is you uh, bled, you know, like a persimmon, you let it really, really ripen. The ones that have a lot of tannins, you let them ripen for a long time. The uh, pectin starts to, the cells start to break down. The pectin and the tannins, which are separated normally, get together. They complex. Once the tannin gets cooked up to the pectin, it no longer has the astringency, and bang, stuff's not astringent anymore. You take apples that are very highly tannic which are known as spitters because you can't eat them, uh, but they're used in, in making cider and whatnot. If you dry them out, when they're drying, the tissue starts to break down. Tannins complex with the uh, with other parts of the apple, precipitate it uh, into something that doesn't cause uh, astringency, and boom. So you are in a weird situation where you took two things that weren't very astringent on their own, and somehow the tannins uh, in them 
have a higher now affinity to the uh, proteins in your mouth than they did before. And I don't know what would, what would cause that, whether, you know, I, I don't know. It's very interesting. It's another thing that, uh, you know, I should uh, bring up with uh, McGee. Too bad this didn't come in last week. I could have asked him when I spoke to him. Uh, and by the way, I don't know if we mentioned it. I did ask Harold McGee about a separate question we had last week on garlic and whether there's any units of garlicness that uh, – and he said no. But we also have some informa- uh, interesting information. I'm not going to have time to get to it today from our good friend at UC Davis, Ariel Johnson, who's gonna, who, who sent us a paper to read on that and also has some very interesting stuff to report on limes. So it's a good reason to tune in next week because there's going to be a lot of interesting uh, lime work coming out. Um, anyway, so I don't know exactly what's going on, but uh, s- somehow the two things mixed together – um, have you know synergistically uh, increased the ability of those tannins to bind with the, with uh, your uh, proteins in your saliva? Interesting. I just said saliva, which is a word Nastasha hates. Anyway, uh, hello Nastasha and Dave. I was listening to your podcast last week, and now I remember that there was a question about uh, the white powder on kombu. I did a research project last summer in Denmark uh, with uh, South Denmark University and Lars Williams, who's at Noma, to see whether we could quantify umami in the lab. We worked a bit on Scandinavian seaweeds. And I recall the white powder on kombu is mannitol. Uh, I might have read it in a book. I don't remember or searched online uh, where, where there's confirmation. Um, mannitol, uh, look, I, I, that's, I kind of remembered that too, but I still c- couldn't find quickly the information on that. Mannitol, interesting, is a sugar, uh, a sugar that is uh, discovered uh, in manna. Yeah, you know, manna, mannitol from manna. So interesting what goes around comes around. Anyway, uh, uh, and uh, mannitol from kombu, uh, well, it's a sugar alcohol. Uh, anyway, but mannitol from kombu is pretty harmless, and some websites say there's a sweetness to the kombu and therefore it shouldn't be wiped off. Okay, aside from that, aside from the kombu, I have a question about French fries. This is from Larissa, by the way. Uh, I am now working on a research project to develop an optimal a recipe for French fries at Fundacio Alicia in Spain, which is, you know, like a school that teams up with Harvard to do the cooking, uh, to cooking thing. Uh, long story short, I was an undergrad teaching assistant for Harvard Science, a cooking course in 2010, which is how I learned about Alicia. So after graduating with a physics degree, I came to Alicia for a six-month internship. Okay, so for the project, I've been consulting a lot of specific papers and your and other blog posts on what's going on when we make French fries. Most of my findings have been similar to yours. Uh, plus some interesting things. For example, when we freeze raw potatoes before frying, the fries are extremely hard and get harder with time. We had some fries that got really hard with time. They were kind of gross. Anyway, um, uh, test ongoing. Anyway, I was wondering whether you have any new findings since the last fries uh, post in 2010, especially on using different potato varieties. Here in Spain, the two common types we get are Kennebecs, which are white, and Agrias, which are yellow. Agrias yellow color being more pleasing to the majority of people, and the Kennebecs come out of the uh, uh, fryer extremely blonde uh, and don't turn yellow. Okay, Kennebecs, Nastasha and I were hanging out with a potato lunatic at a show once, and you weren't there for that one? Anyway, so I talked to the potato lunatic. Someone's literally staring in at the radio station going, what is these people? What are they doing? You see that? Anyway, and she, she didn't like what she, she, uh, she saw. She made the vegan face and walked away. Uh, so the um, uh, Kennebecs uh, are good, very good potato, but apparently they don't do well on storage. And so for storage, they're not going to necessarily work very, very well. I haven't done the research on uh, varieties the way I want. I mean, typically, look, for a French fry, you're looking for high solids, low moisture, uh, you know, starchy uh, potato. And, you know, the good old-fashioned uh, russet Burbank uh, that we use is pretty good for that or any kind of similar kind of high starch, high solid, low moisture potato. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, p- 
potatoes is that also the optimum potato isn't just a variety. It is a variety and how it was stored because potato goes through – uh, potato goes through a lot of changes during storage. In fact, older potatoes that have been stored properly, not ones that are all shriveled and nasty, but an older potato that has been stored properly is actually a uh, better uh, frying potato. So there are people who don't like the new crop potatoes when they come out and will continue to use the ones that have been stored for a whole year uh, under cold storage because – or not cold storage, but under optimum storage because that, that those are the ones that they like that they fry up nice. So anyway, also on my fry, my fries. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna not repost it, but like uh, you know, we're we're opening up a, a bar concept here soon, and there's gonna be French fries on the menu. I'm just letting you know there's gonna be French fries on the menu, and it's not gonna be the exact recipe that we have on the blog because that recipe was written for three eighths inch French fries. I now favor a half inch French fry, and uh, the trick to a French fry is always about getting the moisture level exactly right on the inside of the French fry. If you go if you dehydrate them too much, you get hollow fry. Uh, and if you don't do it enough, you get a soggy fry. And at the same time, I, I, you know, I don't want the outside to be hard and leathery. I want it to be crisp, but I want it to bite nicely and not be like – I don't want it to be like a rock. If I want to eat a rock, you know, I'll just serve you a rock. You know what I mean? Anyway, so uh, – and so basically in my post – I didn't recommend if you're going to use a pectin XSPL, which is the enzyme that we use to uh, break down the, the uh, pectin on the, and the hemicellulose on the surface of the French uh, fries so that you get a uh, very good crust formation, Miravold et al., Maxime and, and Chris recommend uh, using an ultrasonic bath for similar purpose. Uh, it, when you do that, I recommend not uh, not drying after you do your initial uh, blanch step. I recommend not doing too much air drying uh, because that leads to phenomenon known as hollow fry, where you've gotten rid of so much moisture that the potato on the inside just it doesn't have any structure anymore and it goes hollow. Uh, when you switch to a half-inch fry, you do need to bring some of that drying back just to get the moisture level right. So like with anything else, it's just a matter of paying attention to your ingredients and figuring out what's going on. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. Uh, Matthew writes in, uh, I've heard Dave say a couple of times not to salt things too far ahead of time or before a cooking, uh, long, low cooking process as this will eliminate some juiciness. In my head, I remember reading something from McGee to the contrary that the general wisdom of not wanting to salt meat too far ahead as it would cause it to leak juice is actually bunk. What's the deal? I like the word uh, bunk. Oh, uh, he also follows up and uh, says, how do you feel about salting meat that will be braised for a long time? For example, salting or brining some beef overnight before braising so uh, so the salt penetrates all the way through the meat. I guess this uh, also applies to salty marinades. Is the issue at hand that the salt will turn the texture of the meat mushy or that you believe it will rob it of its juices, which I thought McGee uh, debunked? Well, McGee's favorite... McGee's like famous debunk is on searing, sealing in the juices, right? That's his super famous debunk, right? Um, but it's not the ju- it's not juiciness. In fact, when you salt meat, the literal amount of water in it is uh, going to be higher because the the after cooking because the proteins, even though you actually some moisture will come out, the meat uh, itself will uh, bind water uh, better, which is what brining does. Which is why when you brine chicken, it you know it you can overcook it a little bit and it still stays juicy. Okay, so. Um, Salting can help juiciness that way, and it's not that it makes uh, texture mushy. It just makes it firmer, more like a cured uh, texture. And so when you're eating something like a steak, 
you don't want that firmness that you get from uh, kind of curing with salt, and so you want to stay away from it. In braises, especially a traditional braise, where you're going to cook the thing to death and you're using the gelatin, uh, the collagen breakdown of the gelatin to moisturize it, I don't think it's going to be an issue, and there you want the salt in there for flavor, so I think it's okay. It's when you're going to serve something like a steak and you want to have the texture of a, like a, uh, you know, a regular juicy steak and not have it be firm. It's not that it's actually less juicy. It's just firmer. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, I'm, I, am, I am not in uh, – I'm in no way contradicting McGee. We are, we are in agreement. Okay. So um, – all right. So there's a question coming in. I got to answer it because it's coming up on, on Thanksgiving. We mentioned uh, – this is from uh, Joe from Chicago – uh, I shudder to think of a day when you no longer release your weekly podcast. I'm constantly learning and inspired. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, speaking of inspiration, I came away from last week's uh, episode feeling compelled to make a modernist version of turducken, uh, which is where you know you wrap the turkey and the duck and the chicken and yeah, go back and listen to last week if you want to know the specifics. Anyway, but I have the following questions before I ruin a perfectly good turkey. What specific kind of meat glue would you recommend for this application? Uh, you're going to want it, Joe. You're going to want to get uh, transglutaminase, at, which is Activa. RM. RM is the one you sprinkle. If you want, you can get GS. GS is the one that you paint on in a paste. I'm a, a kind of an RM junkie, but you know, GS will work fine. Don't get any other variety for this because you know you might run into problems. So RM or GS. And you could probably get them from modernistpantry.com too. You mentioned gluing the turkey skin to the flattened turkey breast. Would you recommend gluing any of the other layers together? Uh, Joe, I glue all the layers together. So what you're going to do is you're going to put a sprinkling of glue. Every, every time you uh, put a layer of meat down, you're going to sprinkle a little glue to get good adhesion um, all, all the way through. Um, and then what about stuffing as a layer or perhaps the core? I do use a sausage layer in the middle of the uh, turducken between the chicken and the duck, um, and I do it put it there because that's where uh, you want like a thermal barrier. So the duck doesn't want to be at 63. Duck wants to be at uh, like you know 57, 58, you know max like 59, and then the turk the chicken doesn't want to be anything below 63. So the sausage layer goes there because it can kind of take up that thermal difference. It'll be good in that whole range, and so that's why we put the stuffing there. You could also put it in the core, but the problem is it won't get cooked at that temperature. So you either have to pre-cook the, the core then um, or you know, do something else. So I wouldn't put the stuffing at the core because the core is where the least cooked stuff is going to be. Uh, four, to retain the tube shape that is achieved primarily through meat glue, and pla- uh, the, the meat glue and plastic wrap, or would you recommend butcher's twine plastic wrap? Don't go with butcher's twine. If you've ever tried to meat glue stuff with butcher's twine, it's a bloody freaking mess. Don't do it. It's going to everything. It's like just use the plastic wrap and roll it. If you are against cooking in plastic wrap, then take the plastic wrap uh, off before you cook it. By the way, Wiley was doing some plastic wrap in tubes at the uh, at the Harvard, and he got heckled by a couple of students who was like, you're using plastic. You're killing the earth. Remember? Anyway. Uh, and he was like, what? I think he just ignored them. Uh, five, you mentioned using a thermometer. Do you have any tips for using a probe thermometer with a Ziploc without compromising the integrity of the bag? Is there an easy way to do it without pulling the bags out of the bath? No. Uh, I wouldn't put a Ziploc through uh, – I mean I wouldn't put a thermometer through a Ziploc bag. They make semi-waterproof uh, and heat-proof thermometers. Cooper Atkins does that you can theoretically dishwash. You can stick them in the Ziploc bag. Um, but I've had bad luck. I've had them always leak. So I wouldn't um, – I wouldn't recommend doing that. You look in a plastic wrap situation with a large thing like a turducken. I just shove the shove it probe through the through the plastic wrap, and you're going to get a little bit of water leakage in. But over the size of like a whole kind of turducken thing, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be a big problem. Um, okay, so uh, those are my recommendations on that. And to uh, round it out, 
we have a call. I don't even know who this is from, actually, but someone sent us in. Steve. Oh, Steve. Hey, Steve. So Steve says, uh, the Atwater system's failure to address actual energy availability is well known, but people seem to assume it just scales uniformly, and that strikes me as a very flawed assumption and sends us a link to an interesting paper, uh, which I can't actually get to, and the paper is known as uh, Processing Food Extensively by Thermal and Non-Thermal Techniques. Hmm. Uh, anyway, so... The Atwater system, for those of you that don't know, right? Atwater was the guy who, uh, his name was Wilbur Olin Atwater, and he was uh, alive, you know, in the, in the, you know, he he was working roughly from after the Civil War up to the early part of the 1900s. And, um, he was the one that kind of figured out uh, food energy and calories, right? So what he would do is he would uh, eat a bunch of stuff and then uh, kind of measure kind of what you know what he was that he that he ate. He would burn it to kind of figure out how much energy it had, and then he would measure the like his poop and he would burn his poop and figure out how much stuff was left in his poop. He would try to figure out how much stuff he was peeing out. He tried to figure out how much he was breathing out in terms of figuring out like what like how you're actually utilizing the energy that's in food, and so the concept of the calorie as being a re- like a reasonable thing was basically from you know stemming from his research and going on and and the, the point is is in fact is that it's it uh, kind of bunk right and so now we all have these calorie uh, things that we see and they try to they basically just take individual units like protein has this much calories fat has this many calories carbohydrates have this many calories and they lump them and then scale them and Steve you're exactly right uh, this it, it, it's completely Incorrect. It's based on a whole bunch of like super incorrect uh, assumptions. Um, you know the people who are, and, and the problem with it is, is, you know, as you say, that there no one has really given an alternative to try and figure out how it works. But my favorite is this: Look, if you're eating a raw vegan diet, everybody knows that if you take a look at what's let what's excreted from your body, that you don't digest it effectively, right? Uh, and everybody knows that if you drink a gallon of corn oil, you're not going to absorb that thing. You're going to be spraying some corn oil out the other side, right? So uh, clearly, the combinations you eat, how you eat, and the quantities you eat, and what you're eating is going to make a huge difference. But the paper that he uh, that he uh, you know sent to us is very interesting because they did a bunch of testing on availability of uh, energy from food cooking versus not cooking. And this is to go back to the raw vegan uh, section we had before. And a lot more typically with meats, uh, not just with starches, which is obvious, but with meats, uh, cooking it makes a lot more of the energy apparently uh, available, a lot more than just beating the hell out of it or blending it or anything like that. So another argument for cooking your meat, cooking issues. Straight. 